again to the book of Galatians. We've taken a couple of weeks off to consider a Thanksgiving themed text in Scripture, but now come back to our verse by verse study of the book of Galatians. And our sermon text this morning picks up where we left off Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's Word. Your attention to it. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Amen. This is a strange story. It took place in the spring of 2011 at Northport High School in Northport, Florida. A disturbing number of students began suddenly to die in accidents and tragedies. First was Marcus Freeman. He was the 16-year-old varsity quarterback who inexplicably veered off the road when he and his girlfriend were driving, <coughs> ran up into the woods, and was killed. Then there was Wesley McKinney, 16 years old, found hanged to death outside of the home on April the 8th. And then the final victim was Brittany Palumbo, a 17-year-old who was found hanging to death in her bedroom closet. Three students tragically killed, one in an accident and the other by suicide, and the third by suicide, almost inexplicable. But after their death, the school principal told the police that these were three of the 75 students that he had taught hypnosis to surprisingly enough. He taught the quarterback, he said, how to hypnotize himself, as it were, to take off some of the pressure to help him perform better as a quarterback. The second was an instrumentalist trying to get into the Juilliard school, and so he taught him to hypnotize himself as he played the guitar that would help to relax him. And he, and he hypnotized Brittany as well to help her with test anxiety. And when her marks didn't improve on her test after five months, she killed herself. So after being put on administrative leave, of course, this principal resigned in 2012. He was given a year's probation for practicing therapeutic hypnosis without a license. Some dangerous things apparently can happen whenever you are under hypnosis, which is why I think Paul uses a similar comparison in this passage of scripture, he doesn't say necessarily hypnotize, but he uses a very similar concept. Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell on you? Who has brought you under this spell? And really he asks them how, verse number one, he calls them foolish. And verse number three, are you so foolish? He's saying, how can you be so foolish? How can you be so foolish? as to buy into this hypnotic heresy that is leading you away from 
Jesus Christ. I don't know what there might be in your life today that tends to be leading you away from Christ, but it might be something. There might be some kind of temptation in your life, some kind of relationship in your life, some kind of habit that you're cultivating, that if you're not careful and vigilant and keeping your eyes open, you're being lured. You're being bewitched. You're being hypnotized from deviating off and walking further away from your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this passage really does come as a wake-up call of sorts. Paul uses this invective and direct and confrontational language. Are you so foolish? Don't be crazy with your soul today. Don't be led away. Don't be a fool to deny and walk away from your Savior. To really point this at their conscience. For it's in verses 1 through 9. Paul gives what I call the interrogatives and then the imperative. You find the interrogatives in a series of rapid-fire questions in verses 1 through through five. Look at all the question marks. If you have the Bible in front of you, you see a lot of them. He asked them rapid-fire questions, interrogatives, and then in verse number seven moves to give an imperative in light of these interrogatives. The imperative is no then that we'll consider next time in verses seven through nine. We waded out into these interrogatives last time. First, there was a question about the spell they were under. Verse number one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? What was the nature of this bewitchment that they were under, this spell that they were under? Well, I think you can surmise it by what he says in the rest of verse number one. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the nature of the bewitchment is somehow serving to blind them to the preciousness of and the necessity and the exclusivity of Jesus, his blood, his death, his resurrection, alone for salvation. They were being bewitched because they were saying, Jesus is good, but maybe Jesus isn't enough to get me into heaven. And Paul said, who put that spell on you that you would believe that? Don't you see that you were the ones, as it were, who were sitting at the foot of the cross? Have you ever imagined what it would have been like to be a first-hand eyewitness when Jesus died 2,000 years ago? What's the, most, what's the most violent incident that you have ever witnessed personally? I can think of a couple of it was disturbing. The most violent incidences that I have personally witnessed in my life, I can say there were a few, but all of them were disturbing. But none of them, I could tell you by the authority of God, could possibly have compared to the indelible impact on your mind and heart that would have been made had you been front and center at the foot of the cross on Golgotha's Hill watching the Son of God and God the Son bleed and die for sinners, bear the weight of the world on his shoulders, and suffer the immense, eternal, unmitigated wrath of God at the cross. 
says, get Galatians. You seem to have forgotten. Before your eyes. Now, of course, they had not physically been at the foot of the cross. These were Gentiles who, when Jesus died, were not yet converted and lived a long way away from Jerusalem. They weren't physically there. What Paul means when he says it was before your eyes, it's like you watched him die, is you have heard this message preached. And what they had heard was like what they had seen. That means, in a very real sense, you, child of God, you, friend, you, church member, have the very same privilege in hearing the gospel preached as if you were at the cross itself. Therefore, you will have no excuse on Judgment Day if you go out into eternity having rejected Jesus Christ. When you hear the message that Jesus died for sinners and he paid the full price and he's all you'll ever need for salvation and for heaven, and you walk away from that, and you reject that, and you refuse to receive him, you might as well have been for the cross and turned your back and walked away. Paul says, are you so foolish? Question about the spell they were under. Secondly, there's the question about the spirit that they had received. Verse number two, let me ask you only this. Paul is such a preacher. Since I got one question and he asked me four more questions. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? How did you get born again? How did you come into the kingdom? How were you saved? Did you receive the Holy Spirit that transformed your nature and caused you to believe on Christ, that gave you the gift of faith? Did you do it by doing something or just hearing this good news? And as you heard it, the Spirit of God changed your will and changed your mind and brought you to saving faith. How did it happen? And this is obviously a rhetorical question. Because clearly in Scripture, the way one receives the Spirit by which they are converted is hearing, not doing. Hearing, not doing. Just like Charles Spurgeon, when he was converted, he walked into that auditorium and the man read the text, Look unto me, says the Lord, and live. Look, look, look to the Lord. That is the call of the gospel. Not try harder. Not do better. Not cut out bad habits. Not be a good person. That's not how you get to heaven. That's not how you're saved. You can never be good enough to get to heaven. God demands perfection. He doesn't accept one mistake. If you make one mistake, you can't get yourself to heaven. It's not what you do. It is believing in the one who has done it all already. Did you receive the Spirit by doing no? receive the Spirit by hearing. Question about the Spirit that they received and the spell that they were under. Thirdly, as we hurry today, there is in verse number three the question about the sanctification, let's call it, that they were aspiring. The sanctification that they were aspiring. Now, I don't want to assume that everybody here understands some of these big, big biblical words like sanctification. You see, there is justification wherein the moment you're saved, you're declared righteous. But following your salvation, 
There is what the Bible calls sanctification, which is a lifelong process whereby the Lord is at work to make you more and more become like Jesus. To help you to die more and more to sin and live under righteousness, where you begin to have a heart to obey and know and serve the Lord to become more like him. It is, in a real sense, striving for perfection. He calls it striving to be like Christ. In verse number three, Paul says about this sanctification they were aspiring. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can hear that he's holding nothing back. He's pulling no punches. Nor should faithful preachers at times. We should not hold back from the truth because it might offend somebody. He says to them, are you so foolish as to think that you could be perfected by the works of your own fallen flesh when the whole beginning of your salvation was begun exclusively by the Holy Spirit? Of course, when he says begun, I hope you understand there what he means is were you converted? Did you begin your walk with the Lord? Did you start your relationship with Jesus? Were you converted by the works of the flesh or by the Spirit? Of course, you were converted by the Spirit. And this, of course, points up two competing theologies regarding the doctrine of conversion, regarding the doctrine of salvation. How a person is born again. One is called Arminianism. Arminianism is named after the Reformation era pastor Jacob Arminius. And Arminius taught that the fall of man into sin was severe, but not so severe as to completely destroy the will of man to be able to will themselves into the kingdom of God. You still have the ability by your own human will to cause yourself to be born again. That's what Arminianism taught. The problem with that is the Bible. But especially Romans 3, no man naturally seeks after God. Every human being naturally acts according to the strongest impulse of their nature. And your strongest impulse in your nature always, until the Lord gives you a new heart, until that happens, is always going to be to love darkness rather than light. To crave sin rather than righteousness the way a child craves ice cream rather than broccoli. <coughs> or the way I crave a steak rather than coleslaw. One's just better. And for a child to want broccoli instead of ice cream, for me to want coleslaw instead of a steak would connote either be one losing my mind or B, my palate needs to be changed. And in the same way, contra-Arminianism, no man can naturally begin by an act of his will a relationship with God. He won't do it. He won't want it because that which is good and godly and righteous and holy is like broccoli to the fallen will of men. So how does one begin? John 1 says, you were born again. Listen now. 
not of blood. You weren't born again because of families you were born into. Nor of the will of the flesh, not because you willed yourself to be born again, John 1 says. Nor of the will of a man, nor somebody else wishing you to be born again. None of those. Your birth, your will, or somebody else's wish that you will be born again. None of that caused the new birth, John says. You were not born again of blood, of the will of the flesh, or the will of man. So, Pastor John, how was I born again? By God. You, if you have begun with the Lord today, you've begun your walk with the Lord by the Spirit of God. Having begun by the Spirit. Now, since that is true, there's, a, there's an inference that follows that. Follow Paul's logic in verse number 3. Started by the work of the Spirit. Are you going to finish your race now? By your own works? By your own strength? By your own power? James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Philly for years, said he once learned an important theological truth in a most unlikely way. That happens sometimes. You can learn wonderful theological truths in most unexpected ways. Montgomery Boyce was driving around the country with his wife one day, taking in the scenery of the beautiful pastures, long fence lines, the gentle rolling hills, when something caught his attention. He slowed his car down on that old country road and backed up. It was a turtle on top of a fence post. A turtle balanced perfectly on the top of a wooden fence post, just kind of hanging out. So Pastor Boyce got out of the car, took the turtle down, let him go free on his way. He said the philosophical thought enlightened his mind. He thought to himself about that turtle on a fence post. One thing you know, when you see a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there on its own. Somebody else had to put that turtle on the fence post. The turtle had to have the ability to get up on that fence post. And a human being in the estate of grace and salvation is just like a turtle on a fence post. If you are in grace, if you are in Christ, if you have begun with the Lord, you didn't get there by yourself any more than a turtle can climb up a fence post by itself. You got there by somebody else's push. You began by the Spirit. Starting out with Christ was the work of the Spirit of God alone. And you need to hear this today. Finishing your race well then is the work of the Spirit of God today within you. Um, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful that I am not what I used to be by the grace of God. But I must confess, and you probably would confess with me today, that I'm not what I know I ought to be today. I'm not what I want. And I think we can say we're not what we're going to be when we are in the presence of the Lord. But until then, aren't there so many things that God needs to know who we are? I think it's painfully true when we examine ourselves that there are things about ourselves that are yet unsanctified, not yet given to the Lord. We are not yet perfected, nor will we be perfect ever this side of the coming of Christ. Maybe you would say, today I'm saved, Pastor, but I still have that bad attitude that plagues me. I have that jealous spirit. 
envious heart that I struggle with, that tendency to be unthankful and ungrateful, that lustful heart that plagues me, that short temper, that uncontrollable tongue of mine, yours and my goal should always be I want to be like Christ. I want to excise and expunge everything out of my life that is not holy and good and pure and true and perfect like him, but I fall so short. And there's so much progress I still need to make. But that's true. And we need to be honest about that, but at the same time, I don't want you to be discouraged to church. Because here's the good news in all your troubles. If you have the Lord Dwelling you in the Holy Spirit you are everything you need. You have everything you need for life and godliness. There was a pastor, he was preaching in Greenville, South Carolina, but he was staying with a family in Asheville, which is a little distance away, and they were going to, um, some people from the church were going to pick him up and then take him back home, and so he left the house of the family he was staying with, and it was a cold winter evening, and he went to this church an hour away, and he preached there, and then the service was over. He got to be late for the night. By the time they arrived back at the house, he was staying in, coming back from Asheville into Greenville, and the lights were off, and the family was coaching him and going to bed, and he, he didn't want to wake them up. It was freezing outside, so he, he knocked on the door ever so gently. Nobody came. He, he knocked on the kitchen window ever so gently. Nobody came, and he talked to himself. I'm in a pickle. I'm far away from home. It's freezing cold out here, and they're all asleep, and I don't want to inconvenience them and wake them up. They've been so nice about hosting. So he decided he would go down the road and try to call them from a payphone somewhere and uh, get a hold of them. They could open the door, and he walked down the road, and slipped on the embankment and fell down in the water up to his knees in the ditch, and now he's freezing, and he's, he's tempted to curse, and he's got a bad attitude, and he finally makes it to a motel where he uses the phone, and he calls the man who's inside of the house, and he answers the phone, and he says, can, can you come pick me up? I'm, I'm locked out of the house, and it looks like you guys are going to bed. I'm so sorry to inconvenience you. And he said, he said, Pastor, I told you earlier, did you forget? I put the house key in the coat pocket inside of your shirt. You already have it. It's right there. The pastor said, I learned an important lesson. That is everything I need to get inside the house of righteousness, as it were, to do the will of God, has already been implanted within me in the person of the Holy Spirit. So there's no excuse to you, Christian, today. When you fall into temptation, when you yield to sin, there's no excuse for you to say, I couldn't help myself. There's no excuse for you to give in to the wild There's no excuse for you to willingly engage in sin if you have the Holy Spirit. Can't be made perfect by anything. It is the power of God. Fourthly, as we hurry, a question about the suffering they experience. Verse number four. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. This church apparently had suffered persecution immensely whenever they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. For their belief and faith in Christ, they were being persecuted. And Paul has this fear. You endured so much trauma, so much suffering, and now my fear is, has all of this been in vain? Has all of your suffering, your endurance that you stood boldly for Christ in times past, has that all gone down the drain? Has it been for nothing? And I love how Paul 
in verse number four as this word of hope. If indeed it was in vain. You see, the good pastor always holds out hope, even for those who seem to be in a bad place. It's like Paul saying, it could have been in vain, but I don't think that about you. And let me say to you, I don't think that about any of you. I have a biblically, I pray, informed optimism that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. I do not believe that any of God's purposes will ever be in vain. And if God began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion, no matter how bleak it might look now. And that's why I hold out hope that no matter how long somebody might be out of church, how far it might look that they have drifted away from the Lord, how dark the path they might be going down in their life, how hopeless the picture might seem, I know that Christ cannot have died in vain. And if that person or those people are one of Christ's own, he will rescue his sheep, he will go after them, and bring the one back to the fold of the ninety and nine. Paul said, if indeed it was in vain, but it could have been in vain, the church. It could have been in vain, but you have suffered so much. And what I think the Lord was shouting to me as I studied this passage is to say to you, Christian, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. It's been said that when Christians suffer, it produces one of two potential effects. Either when you suffer, it will drive you further from the Lord because you grow bitter. Question why, or it will drive you deeper into the Lord. Let it be the same for you. Let suffering have its perfect work in you. Let it cause humility and greater dependence on the Lord. Let it press you closer into Christ, never to drive you further from Christ. Do you suffer today? Do you suffer today? Is there a malady or hurt, a relational strife that's been like a knife in your heart? Oh, dear one, let it cause you to run faster and rest deeper in the loving arms of your heavenly Father. That is what suffering is designed to do, to cause you to run to the Lord and to be weaned of that, which will draw you or hypnotize you away from Him. Have you ever considered that perhaps the Lord has allowed you to go through difficult times Maybe the strongest timbers of all to use to make a mast to hold the heavy sails that would deal with the wind as it moved across the ocean. So you know what they would do to strengthen the timber, the tree that was going to be made to use the mast? They would cut down all the trees on the hillside around it and make that one stem, the wood. And the reason is when all the other trees around it were cut down and that one had to stand on its own, it bore the brunt of all the wind and all the storms over all the years as it did it. Its fibers would grow tighter and it would make a stronger timber. And then it was trustworthy to put on the ship as a mast and hold and hoist those sails in the middle of the ocean. And to make you and I into strong oaks of righteousness, good news of your present hardship is designed by God for the purpose that in the future you'll be the better and stronger stronger tomorrow for Christ than you are today because you have suffered today and endured. Don't waste your suffering. 
about the second day of creation. And then finally, as we close, a question about the sign stages. First, number five. Does he who supplies the spirit to you works miracles among you? The word supplies there is literally gushing. You ever seen a football coach when he wins a big game? You know what his teammates often do? They dump the Gatorade over his head. Cor uh, it's, it's literally just this lavish pouring out. Does he who dumps the spirit out on Fire hydrates the spirit out on you and work miracles among you. Does it do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith for the powerful preaching of the word? Does the spirit do the work inside of you to cause you to come to faith? And the miracles that you saw done by the apostles in the first century, blinded people could see, lame people, cripples could walk, deaf people could hear, and perhaps even dead people raised, done by those apostles who were immediately put Commissioned by Christ. How did that come? By the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And in just the same way, verse number six, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. These first century Christians called Galatians had witnessed things that caused them to be convinced that Jesus was the Son of God and Savior of the world. The Spirit had done marvelous things through the apostles in their eyes, and they, like Abraham, had believed. And you and I are the marvelous objects of miraculous events as well, wrought by the Spirit. Your deaf ears have been opened. Your blinded eyes have been made to see. Your dead spirit been made alive by the mighty power of God. And now we can leave this place today knowing that God accounts us as righteous. When God sees you, he doesn't see your imperfection if you know Jesus. He sees you as perfect as Jesus is perfect. What the word accounted means in verse number six. That person counts as righteous because Jesus counts for them. So, dear friends, dear ones, if God loves any or anyone, they ever put a spell on you and hypnotize you. By which we are given the gift of faith, by which, by whom we came to believe in God, by whom we have been anointed as righteous, just as Abraham believed. Help us to believe this exercise, believing that what we have heard is true. And we act on it. Amen.